BTK listeners, this is Patrick Georgeoff. Before we get started with this case, I want to remind you that Behind the Knife is growing. We are looking for talented surgical educators to join the team. If you have any interest whatsoever, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at btkpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's btkpodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on our Twitter handle at Behind the Knife to learn more information about this great opportunity. Enjoy the case. So hi again, everybody, and welcome to all of our Behind the Knife listeners out there today. Today, I'm pleased to introduce to you what I hope is the first of many clinical challenges in surgery here on BTK. So for a little bit of background, clinical challenges in surgery, we hope that they're going to be interesting and instructive cases that are designed for maximal educational impact. Now, take a look. We're going to be releasing these episodes pretty regularly, so be sure not to miss them and be sure to check out some of the uh, old ones that are going to be up on the podcast as we get into this. So very pleased to have our newest member to the BTK family uh, joining us today. And that's Patrick Georgeoff, who is acute care surgeon and intensivist at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. Patrick, welcome to Clinical Challenges. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled. And I'm also very pleased to have a longtime friend and also colorectal surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and that's Dr. Joshua Blyer. Josh, welcome. I think this is your first time on BTK. It is. Uh, very excited to be here. Thank you, Scott, and I appreciate the opportunity. And of course, I am Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Dominate the day. So let's get started. Gentlemen, you are seeing a patient in the emergency department. Now, this is an otherwise healthy 56-year-old woman with a significant past medical history who presents with left lower quadrant pain. She's had it for about roughly 48 hours. She said she may maybe a little bit of chills, maybe a little bit of intermittent diarrhea. She doesn't go to the doctor much. She essentially doesn't have a whole lot of past medical history. You kind of ask her any diverticulitis, any sort of colonoscopy in the past, any IBD, and she basically says no to any of that. Her vital signs are normal. You examine her and essentially her examination is essentially benign, except for she has a little bit of some tenderness to palpation in the left lower quadrant. Her labs are essentially normal. She does have a slight left shift with a white count of 14. And like many of the places all around BTK listener land, she already got a CAT scan by the time you saw her and the CAT scan of her abdomen pelvis shows quote unquote, uncomplicated sigmoid diverticulitis. They don't see any perforation. They don't see free fluid. They don't see an abscess and no sign of a mass. There's a little bit of thickening, maybe a little bit of some kind of some peri, um, pericolonic fat stranding in that area. So Patrick, we'll start it off with you. How do you classify this patient's diverticulitis? Right. So uncomplicated versus complicated. That's a term that's, that's thrown around an awful lot. And uh, there actually is a definition for what defines complicated. So in 2020, the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons defined complicated diverticulitis as diverticulitis with an uncontained perforation with a systemic inflammatory response and or a fistula, an abscess stricture or obstruction. So this patient, she has a contained microperforation. She's not sick. So we'd call this uncomplicated diverticulitis. So Josh, you know, one of the things that you read out there in a lot of the different textbooks is the fact that by definition, does diverticulitis, does it, is it a perforation? Patrick just mentioned a little bit this quote unquote micro perforation. So how do we sort out complicated versus uncomplicated in terms of perforation or stricture or obstruction or fistula? How do, how do we really work that, that perforation aspect into it in terms of complicated versus uncomplicated? So 
you, are you, you might be referring to sort of the way we talk about the various types of perforation. Are you talk like, like you talk about the Hinchy score. Um, so the Hinchy score is like one of those terms that we pimp uh, people on a lot, and it basically describes the cl the classification of the perforation. A Hinchy one is a simple paracolic abscess. A Hinchy two is a pelvic abscess. A Hinchy three is purulent peritonitis. So you had an abscess, it perforated, and now you've got pus throughout the belly. And Hinchy four is feculent peritonitis. And this is mostly a, a classification which is used to assist with communication and describing what you're seeing on a CAT scan. It has a little bit less relevance from a clinical perspective uh, and is more, you know, it's more important to manage the patient themselves and what you see rather than specifically classifying it. But it's a useful classification for understanding the various types of manifestations of, of, uh, of perforation. You know, I think that's been one of the most difficult things is as we try to stratify patients, we know that not everybody fits the textbook definition. As a matter of fact, I can remember one of my early days of call getting called on somebody who has quote unquote free air with perforated diverticulitis and they had indeed a massive amount of free air walk into the room and I see them sitting there eating a Subway sandwich and they look fine. So again, we don't operate necessarily on a particular radiographic appearance. We operate on the patient and kind of putting all this together, but it is a way that we can kind of somewhat group apples to apples, oranges to oranges. And so let's get back to our patient. So, uh, Patrick, this is her first flare. She, as I said before, she really hasn't had much of this before in the past, and it's uncomplicated. So, kind of walk me through your next steps in this, and and what what's going through your mind right now, and what's going through your mind in terms of how you're going to go about treating her. Yeah, I think first we we, we determined and, and mentioned this patient's non toxic. Uh, this is her first flare. This is an uncomplicated flare, uh, so she does not require for surgery. And in fact. Uh, she may not even necessarily require a hospital admission or IV antibiotics for that matter. And so if amenable, uh, this patient could be discharged home with a close follow-up. If she was to be uh, admitted for observation, she could be a fairly rapidly transitioned to regular diet and uh, PO antibiotics, again, according to how she's doing. So Josh, antibiotics. So uh, as probably a lot of the listeners out there know, and they'll be apt to point out very quickly, there's some studies and some data out there that show that maybe antibiotics don't need to be for everyone, and especially in the setting of uncomplicated diverticulitis. Is, is that true? Is that is that indeed the case? And if so, and why is it the knee-jerk reaction to make sure that we are giving all of these patients antibiotics? Uh, it, it actually seems like it may be true. I mean, it's a surgical truism and classic teaching for all patients with diverticulitis to get antibiotics. But more recently, some of the classic teachings about surgery are calling into or have been called into question and diverticulitis is at the center of a lot of those uh, relearning new dogma. So there are two relatively large uh, recent uh, randomized controlled trials that have looked at this and they actually found no difference in complications, recurrence or time to recovery uh, between patients who received antibiotics and those who didn't for uncomplicated diverticulitis. So I'm going to throw it right back to your face and say, very interesting. So does this patient need antibiotics? And then second, if they don't, then why do we still do it? So she might not need antibiotics. Um, the, the practice parameters uh, for ASCARS state that uh, selected patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis can be treated with antibiotics. And that actually has a, you know, good data backing. It's a strong recommendation with high quality evidence. That being said, 
this is the way a lot of us were trained and we're talking about a micro perforation process and I, I still treat the majority of these patients with antibiotics. I just don't feel as comfortable. I, I believe this is a localized infective process, especially with an elevated white count and I, I would give her antibiotics. And as many of the listeners out there know, there are some really nice patient-centered trials that are going on led by Dr. David Flum out of the University of Washington that is even looking at this closer. And we hope to have some of these different aspects of this particular uh, this particular dilemma out there soon. And so let's go back to our patient. So Patrick, back to you. So let's just say that, you know, she got down there, they saw at the ER doc, they gave her an IV dose of antibiotic before you really saw her. And you're looking at her and you're thinking, okay, she's fine. And she's got a very strong support structure at home and she's discharged home. She gets put on 10 days or so of augmentin. And now it's a couple of weeks later and you see her in your clinic. This first time you see her, you're sitting there talking to her and her symptoms are resolved. She's asking you, hey, I eat right. I'm doing fine. Yeah, I like my popcorn. I like some of this stuff. Uh, how did I develop diverticulum in the first place? And, uh, you know, can I prevent this? And then I've been going online, she says to you, and I've been reading a lot about surgery and surgery scares me. What do you tell her? Right. I think this is, this is maybe one of the most important parts of this whole podcast is because we find ourselves really frequently inside the, uh, clinic with these patients and they're asking us, what's going on here? Can I eat my popcorn? Do I need surgery? And it's a tough conversation because it's, we're going to get down, drill down on it a bit more, but really is patient specific. And so, um, this, this question about how she developed diverticulum is interesting. I was in clinic just a few weeks ago, actually. And one of the, the students asked, well, what, what is a diverticulum? Like, what do you mean? What actually happens? And so, uh, diverticular develop at points of weaknesses in the in the colon wall, and specifically where the vasa recta penetrate the circular muscle layer of the colon, and this results in a false or pulsion type diverticulum in which mucosa and submucosa herniate through the muscle layer, and that's covered only by serosa, so a thin wall, and abnormal colonic uh, motility is thought to be probably the most important predisposing factor in the development of diverticula. So Josh, uh, you know, very basic, we have a, a lot of different people that listen to BTK. And so just kind of bring it down, diverticulum, lay, la versus itis. What is diverticulitis? Well, itis, of course, means inflammation, uh, as we've learned in medical school. So diverticulitis is inflammation of a diverticulum. Diverticulosis is just having diverticula. But the diverticulitis itself uh, is something that is an inflammatory process. And the underlying pathophysiology of this is not entirely known. Um, it could be and may likely be due to micro uh, or macroscopic perforation of a diverticulum. Why that exactly happens, we're not entirely sure. There's actually some new evidence that suggests maybe that diverticulitis may be a primary inflammatory process in and of its own right, and that can result in perforation rather than being a complication of perforation itself. And there's even a, an entity called diverticular associated colitis. So we're learning more and more about this. And like many things, um, what we used to think may not always be true. And so, we, you know, in addition to giving good patient care, we have to learn that maybe there are some new things about we should change how we've been managing this. Yeah, absolutely. On a, almost on the uh, spectrum of IBD, if you will. And we know that there's some patients that mirror each of those. And so uh, right back to you, Josh. So she says, do you, I like my peanuts. I like my popcorn. 
in terms of preventing another flare, what are some things that she can do? And then kind of the age old question about that peanuts and popcorn, what do you tell her? I have this conversation like 30 times a week. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no really reliable data that says that the surgical, that the, you know, conventional wisdom of peanuts, popcorn and, and berries causes diverticulitis. I tell patients that if every time they have nuts, they get diverticulitis, don't have nuts. But if they love nuts and it doesn't cause a problem, they can certainly have it. Um, I generally recommend a high fiber diet. Uh, and there is some uh, low quality evidence that implicates maybe tobacco in, uh, involvement uh, in diverticulitis. So tobacco cessation is recommended. Reduced meat intake and weight loss can also help. I think a lot of that has to do with improving the bulk in diet. So it decreases the, the, the pressure that is needed to be generated to push things through. Um, so I always recommend a uh, not only high fiber diet, uh, but a bowel regimen to avoid constipation. Yeah. So one of the questions that gets asked all the time is, listen, I got diverticulitis. You told me to go on a kind of a low residual diet. Now you're telling me high fiber. What is it? And the analogy that I've heard in the past and used is think about exercising and, and lifting weights. It might be good for the muscles, but if you strain a muscle, we don't necessarily want to lift weights at that time. So long-term for us, yeah, high fiber diet, but in the acute setting, when you've quote unquote injured your muscle in your colon, <laughs> that would be a time when you want to do a low residual diet, maybe an easy way to think about it. And so Patrick, this patient, given this circumstance, what we talk about first time uncomplicated, she's doing well, does she need surgery? No, no, this patient doesn't. And so the decision to proceed with surgery is absolutely patient specific. And so the severity of the initial flare, uh, the presence or absence of ongoing symptoms, um, the number of flares the patients had and other comorbidities are all important uh, considerations about whether or not you perceive a surgery. So in general, surgery is not offered after the first flare of uncomplicated diverticulitis. Okay, change the scenery. Here we go. So now it's not her and her first time. This is her third flare. All of them been uncomplicated, but they're CT documented. It's her third flare in uh, the last two years. What do you say to her now? Yeah, so that's a that's a bit more detailed of a conversation. This patient may be appropriate for surgery at this time, but still, it uh, it is up to her. So uh, one of the questions patients ask is, what's my likelihood of having another flare? And so uh, there was a, a recent review of over 180,000 patients uh, who recovered from their first episode of, of uh, diverticulitis without surgery. And this study found that 9% of patients went on to have a second admission for diverticulitis. And of the patients admitted twice, 23% required a third admission. So because the risk of occurrences increases uh, after each recurrence, uh, at some point, you really want to consider surgery for these patients. And so again, you got to sit down with her and, uh, and uh, really hash this out. So what about just operative risk? She's like, if I have a more of these bouts, is my operative risk going to go up? Is my concern for wearing a bag going to go up? What do you tell her about that? Right. And that's an, an important piece of the uh, discussion. And actually, the answer is no, there's no data su to suggest that you're gonna have a worse outcome in the OR after having numerous flares. Josh, anything else you can want to recommend for this particular patient? Uh, yeah, she needs a colonoscopy. Um, she's never had one. So she'd need a colonoscopy anyway, based on her age. But certainly, uh, after an attack of diverticulitis, it's, if there's been no recent colonoscopy, uh, I recommend one around six to eight weeks after they have uh, fully recovered their, with the last symptom. 
So let's just say that she had a colonoscopy, I don't know, five years ago and it was normal. Do you still get a colonoscopy? There was no mass on CT scan. Yeah, I would. Um, if it's been five years, uh, she's 56 uh, and, you know, things change. And there is some association uh, between diverticulitis and the presentation of cancer. So there was a recent review that showed that cancer is estimated to be present in a 1.3% of patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis and almost 8% of patients with complicated diverticulitis. So this presentation of diverticulitis may be masking something else. And so if there's been a reasonable interval since their last colonoscopy, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, so I don't want our listeners out there to think that we're saying that diverticulitis equals cancer. We're not saying that at all, but we're also saying, let's take a good history. Let's look for some alarming symptoms and understand that you may not necessarily see anything especially in the setting of acute inflammation on a CT scan. And it warrants making sure that we rule out some potential badness that occur of which the leading one is cancer. So let's change up the scenario a little bit. Let's just say now we have that same 56 year old female. She presents to the emergency department now again, now with still 48 hours of abdominal pain. This time you walk in to see her and she looks sick. Her heart rate's about 110. She's got a blood pressure that's uh, that is doing okay at about systolic 130. She's again, tender to palpation, but her tenderness is really kind of focal in that area. And it's quite a bit more than if you could compare her side by side for that first initial presentation that we saw. Her white count now is 18, again, with a left shift. And now the CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis shows that she's got diverticulitis, but she's got a five centimeter pelvic abscess without evidence of free air or free fluid. Patrick, to you. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this pelvic abscess. So what do we do in this particular situation? Sure. So this patient has, has complicated diverticulitis at this point. She should be admitted to the hospital. Uh, we can make her MPO, uh, get some IV fluids going, broad spectrum antibiotics to cover gram negative and anaerobes. And I'm going to call interventional radiology in this setting. Uh, pretty much the rule of thumb is once you get over three centimeters in size or so, if that abscess is reachable, uh, we're going to ask IR to drain it. So Josh, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of data out there that talks about the ability to be able to drain something versus antibiotics alone. Patrick mentioned a little bit about some size criteria that goes on there. Is there typically a difference in location about, I, I read some papers that say that a pelvic abscess, which she has here, tends to have a little bit of a worse prognosis uh, versus a pericolonic uh, abscess. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it really all depends on um, whether or not this is something that's accessible for percutaneous drainage. Um, you know, I, if it's if it's drainable, then uh, they're and they can get and they fully recover. These patients can do quite well, uh, and I think that even though this is technically classified as complicated diverticulitis, and the classic teaching has been surgery in those cases after they resolve. Many patients with good uh, IR uh, management of pelvic abscesses get better. Now, a localized process uh, to, the, to the colon makes subsequent surgery usually a lot easier because there's less of a risk of developing, let's say, a fistula to the vagina uh, or a fistula to the bladder. Uh, but at the, you know, at the same time, uh, there could be a lot of inflammatory adhesions, which can make subsequent surgery a little bit more difficult. You can have intramural abscesses in the setting of diverticulitis. And anecdotally, I've found that sometimes the patients that just don't get better 
with IV antibiotics and prolonged uh, treatment are often the ones that have significant involvement uh, in intramurally or pericolonic disease. So I'm going to pin you down a little bit. Let's say, say that Aya was able to place the drain. She gets better. White count gets normalized. She gets started on a diet, discharge home. She finishes her course of antibiotics. Now she's sitting right there in front of you in your clinic. Uh, you remove the drain and she wants to know about surgery. She says, do I have to have surgery, doc? What do you say? I say I would be willing to do surgery, but it is not absolutely necessary. Again, this is one of these classic teachings, which we're re-looking at, uh, and that is that if patients can completely resolve their uh, acute attack uh, or complicated attack and they are asymptomatic, then I have no problem continuing to follow them out uh, and um, see if they can ma be managed conservatively. But at the same time, all patients with complicated diverticular disease who are treated non-operatively should be considered uh, for elective resection because it's a reasonable thing. Uh, the decision to proceed with surgery is patient-specific. You know, do, are they a, a good operative risk? Do they never want to go through that process again? Uh, or are they so, you know, surgery-averse that they'd like to do anything to try to avoid surgery? Um, the other things are, you know, do they have complete resolution of their symptoms or do they still have crampy pain? Um, how many, how many uh, other attacks have they had? You know, so I would say that I would be willing to do surgery electively in a good patient in terms of a good risk patient after a complicated attack, but I don't think it is mandatory. So that's all well and good, but her husband is a professor of statistics and he's sitting right next to you and he says, let me let me let me get a little bit of numbers. You got you got anything? I I, I don't I don't work like that. I, I my <laughs> mind thinks that I need some statistics here. So sure. some numbers that you can cite for this patient. You know, taking somebody out in electric surgery, he's he's talking about risk reduction. What are the risks with surgery versus the risk of having recurrence in a bag again? Can can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So recurrence rates for patients that have an abscess range widely from as low as 10% to as high as 60%. And I usually tell my patients they have about a one in three chance of a recurrent attack. But it's also important, and I always tell my patients that their first attack is usually their worst. In other words, most of the recurrent flares are less severe than the patient's initial flare. Can't guarantee that, but if they, if with their first attack, if they didn't need an emergent surgery and a Hartman's procedure, that it's very unlikely that they're going to end up in the operating room with an emergent operation and a colostomy. But the more recurrent complicated flares they have, the higher the risk of potential emergency surgery. And that comes with significant morbidity. So I tell them that the best way to approach surgery for uh, diverticulitis is proactively, not reactively. So Elective surgery is going to give us our best shot at a straightforward, minimally invasive operation, primary anastomosis. And if we wait for a, if we have to react to recurrent diverticulitis, the risk of more complicated surgery goes up. Josh, she's still sitting in your office. So I'm going to keep on pounding her. She's like, doctor, you didn't say anything about quality of life. Uh, looking at surgery versus non-operative management. Can, I mean, can, any, any, any data about that? Uh, yes, absolutely. There, those are. It's a very important question, and actually, there's a, there are multiple recent studies and an ongoing study currently looking at that. Uh, the recently completed laser trial looked at this, uh, and this was a 
randomized controlled trial, which compared elective laparoscopic sigmoid resection with conservative management in a group of 85 patients who had three or more episodes within two years uh, that were complicated or characterized by chronically painful uh, sigmoid diverticulitis, so persistent symptoms. And they found that surgery resulted in a greater improvement in the quality of life scores at six months. But the trade-off for that was that in about 10% of those cases, there were some significant complications. In the end, I can't give them an answer. I, you know, they, I, we need to inform them of the risks and, and educate them. And in this circumstance, the decision is up to the patient. Yeah, I, I think it's important to make an understanding between, you know, a resolved abscess. Again, I encourage everybody out there, the you know, University of Southern California group, I think the lead author on that LAM was uh, just had a meta-analysis that talked about kind of this exact scenario, what to do with an abscess. And it's important to classify uh, complicated diverticulitis. If you have somebody that's got a fistula, somebody's got a stricture and obstruction, you know, those are pretty tried and true things that you need to have an operation. A little bit more doubt in terms of whether or not you need to have uh, an operation after an abscess. You know, the data's probably come around. It's it's going to maybe not in select patients. And like a lot of things in the literature, who are those select uh, patients is always the key. And so, Josh, let's go back to our initial ceremony. I'm going to keep you on the hot seat for this one. And let's okay. just say she was you know, the uncomplicated diverticulitis, first one, let's just say she was 45. Does, uh, does, does the fact that she's young, that used to be a, she, that was in one of the ASCAR's uh, uh, CPG guidelines in the past. Does that matter? Yeah, that was a, uh, it was a classic boards type question and pimp question when I was a resident uh, that anybody with young attack, uh, who's young and has an attack of any kind of diverticulitis needs surgery. But the, we've learned that that is not true. Uh, just because they're young, no. Uh, elective resection based solely on age is not recommended anymore. Patrick, you're up. Time for you to be on the hot seat. So I'm going to switch the scenario again. Same patient, 56 years old, emergency department, two days of belly pain, come in, she's febrile, heart rate's 120. You put her hand in your belly, white comes to 26, CAT scan shows free air, she's got fluid in the belly. She's got a concerning exam. What are you doing? So come on, I'm an acute care surgeon. This patient's going to the OR right away. Yeah, when this. you're a hammer, the world's a nail. Uh, this is an easy one. And you get in there and you, you you can smell it before you see it. And she's got a moderate amount of kind of feculent ascites that are throughout there. You wash her all out. You resuscitate her like crazy. Anesthesia's doing a great job. She's not on pressors. Her lactate was five, now it's 2.8. How are you gonna manage this patient? All right, so you got a few options. So you can perform a Hartman's maneuver, was one. You could do resection uh, with colorectal anastomosis with a diverting loop biliostomy, or you could simply resect the patient, put her back together and skip the diverting loop biliostomy. Okay, just for, uh, again, lots of listeners at a lot of different stages in their career. First of all, boundaries for resection for diverticulitis. What are they, proximal and distal? Yeah, so proximal, you wanna make sure we get back to healthy colon. So colon that's not involved with uh, inflamed or has uh, diverticulitis or a large diverticulum. And distally, we need to get down to the rectum. Uh, and uh, that is always our, our distal resection margin. And so you're kind of, you're, you're in there. I just wanna, Scott. Yeah. I just wanna point out that, in, in, I just wanna just put a cautionary word out there because when you're talking about a Hartman's procedure and you're not necessarily putting them back together, sure, it's important to, 
he's exactly right that for for anastomosis you want to get down to the rectum but if i'm doing a hartman's procedure i want to actually leave as much healthy distal sigmoid as i can as long as i can get out the inflamed spot yeah and we can go back to what the definitive reconstruction is because i wouldn't say in general we want to leave the healthy sigmoid colon in when you have sigmoid diverticulitis uh, at the definitive side of uh, an operation if you're going to take them back and take it down so uh, back to you, uh, Patrick. So how do you decide what you're going to do? You mentioned a couple of different things, Hartman's, resection. I mean, if you look far enough back, there's the old three-stage procedure where you just diverted them up front and let everything cool down and then kind of went back. We don't do that much anymore. But how do you decide what to do intraoperatively? Yeah, so it depends how the patient's doing. And uh, I think that one rule of thumb definitely is I want to avoid doing a Hartman's if I can. So there is good data that shows uh, improved morbidity and actually mortality rates following uh, resection and primary anastomosis with or without a diverting ostomy. Uh, Hartman's patients are less likely to have their stomas uh, reversed and reversing this Hartman's patient results in more complications when you when you do get them back for reversal. So uh, if the patient's physiology allows for it, in this case, I would say that it does based on her improved tachycardia, her improved lactate, she's warm, she's not on pressors, then I'm gonna think about uh, putting this patient back together. And uh, the real question then comes is, do you divert or not? But, but wait a minute, wait a minute here. So you're telling me that you're gonna leave a colon full of stool in this patient, if you go ahead and do a diverting leukoleostomy, so I, I'm sure you're saying here that you have to do an on-table lavage. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Well, Josh, what about you? You're a colon and rectal surgeon. Do we? What, what is the role for on-table lavage? What What is going on here? Uh, on-table lavage is a horrendous procedure and horrendous maneuver and is to be best avoided if whenever possible. I mean, it's not great uh, to do a primary anastomosis and then divert above a, a column of stool because you do kind of lose a lot of the benefit of uh, what an ileostomy gives you. But we've learned uh, over time that doing anastomosis in an unprepped colon is perfectly safe. And it really de depends on the stability of the patient and what's the quality of the bowel that you're putting back together. If they're stable, and even if there was perforation, uh, if the bowel that you're reanastomosing is healthy, then I would just put them back together. I would not do an on-table lavage. So Patrick, I, I don't want to leave you alone. Back to you. So just really quickly. So what a Hartman can be indicated though in certain circumstances. I get it. So when let me ask the question a little bit different way. When do you decide to do a Hartman's? Sure. So those patients are sick. So maybe they're hypotensive, acidotic cold, uh, on vasopressors, poor health at baseline, et cetera, where I'm worried that they are not going to heal that anastomosis. Um, uh, don't hesitate to do a Hartman's procedure. It's, it's a, this oftentimes the safest and best procedure for those patients, um, but definitely indicated in certain folks. So, and then the new kid on the block, something I know there's a lot of disagreement maybe between some of the European guidelines as well as the ASCARS guidelines, but laparoscopic lavage, where you just irrigate out the belly like crazy, you identify the hole in there, you leave a drain, fight the fight another day. What kind of, what's the role for that? Right. And I think we should frame that too. I think that's, we're really talking about Hinchy 3 or per, purulent peritonitis, I think. Uh, 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 certainly laparoscopic lavage at this point, based on the data we have, is not indicated for, for Hinchy 4 disease, where you have a real sick patient with a, a belly full of stool. Um, and so currently, 
based on the information we have, laparoscopic lavage uh, has been shown to result in shorter operative times, less wound infections, and fewer stomas created. But it also increases the risk of abscess uh, formation of peritonitis and importantly, the risk of future emergency operations. So uh, for Hinchy 2 or excuse me, Hinchy 3 uh, slash peritonitis, I don't think that the data uh, strongly supports laparoscopic lavage, uh, but it definitely is a tool in the armamentarium. Yeah, my only editorial comment on that is the fact that there's no question that many of the listeners and many of the senior surgeons out there may have a strong feeling about this one way or the other. The early data would suggest that, you know, it was done in a lot of Hinchy 1 and 2, which maybe needed antibiotics alone. So, of course, the studies look good. And then some of the other data has been shown to be variable in Hinchy 3 and Hinchy 4. And I think that the vast majority of the data would suggest that uh, that they would not necessarily do very well. And at present, the ASCRS guidelines uh, don't necessarily recommend that. But definitely for full disclaimer out there that some of the European guidelines do actually endorse using that procedure. All right, so let's 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 wrap this up and talk about some operative tips and tricks, especially from our, our colorectal experts here. So, um, one of the uh, discussions we have a lot with our residents in the operating room is is getting that that splenic flexure down, getting length so that you have a nice tension free. Uh, repair and you're all the way down. Ideally, if you're uh, resecting anastomosis, we talked about getting all the way down to that rectum. Any tips or tricks for how to ensure good length? So, <clears throat> you know, there's lots of different ways that you can approach uh, a splenic flexure mobilization. You can do a medial to lateral mobilization where you take the uh, IMV first and mobilize uh, the, the descending colon and splenic flexure mesentery. Um, <clears throat> The key thing is that you've got to fully mobilize it if you're going to use it. Um, I I like to uh, come up the descending colon and medialize the descending colon mesentery off the underlying retroperitoneum as far up as I can go laparoscopically. And then I come up above, put the patient in reverse Trendelenburg position and get into the lesser sac. And once I've freed up uh, the um, omentum from the, uh, from the distal transverse colon, you can get a much better... Uh, visualization of what adhesions are left to the splenic hilum or not, and really uh, divide that uh, splenocolic ligament and then feel that you've you fully got the splenic flexure mobilized. Now there's splenic flexure mobilization and there's splenic flexure mobilization. If you do all those maneuvers and you don't take the uh, IMD, you're not going to get as much length, but you may get enough uh, for uh, attention-free anastomosis. And I don't think you need to take the IMD in every single case. Um, you may not even need to mobilize a splenic flexure for every single case. I think it's important to assess whether or not you actually need to do that when you're uh, when you're doing a Hartman's reversal. So the only thing I would add to that is the fact that remember, there's really three components to the splenic flexure. You have the lateral attachments, you have the omental attachments, and you'll have the ones that a lot of times that people forget about, and that's the retroperitoneal attachments, as Josh talked about. That's the pancreatical colic ligament. And so I, for all of our listeners out there, especially the residents and the trainees, the next time you're watching a splenic flexure mobilization, look at the spleen when somebody takes down the omental attachments and lateral attachments. And what you'll see is the spleen will fall away and you will think that you mobilize the splenic flexure, but there's not a lot of give. So to go to Josh's earlier point, it's typically those retroperitoneal attachments, that pancreatical colic ligament that's coming from below that you got to really free up. 
The second aspect of that is, is that I can't tell you the number of times when you really need to get length that what people typically miss is the fact that you may have done a quote unquote high ligation on the IMA, but in reality, you're just picking off some of the sigmoid arcade that is just a bigger bulkier vessel. And so you're not really freeing it up off the retroperitoneum. So make sure that you know that you're underneath because when you divide the IMA and you're truly underneath the IMV without even dividing it, you should have a free plane all the way from medial to lateral to look all the way up. And if you don't, you're probably not in the right decision. Go back and take a look at what you're dealing with. All right. How about the dreaded urinal injuries? So we're going, let's say we're taking a patient back. Our patient had uh, numerous bouts of diverticulitis, had a long conversation in clinic. She's ready for an elective uh, a resection. How do you go about avoiding injury in the ureter? You know, what's important to know is that first and foremost is that most ureteral injuries happen after it's identified. And so people see it, then they kind of forget about it, then it gets back in the way and then it's injured. When you think about the fact that the ureter, the most common place that, you know, you can identify is that it crosses the iliac bifurcation. That's one of the places, but understand with inflammation all the time or reoperative surgery, things medialize. So that's kind of a general rule of principle. The other aspect of it is the fact that we talk about stents and the ability to have a avoidance of ureteral injury or not. And the fact that, you know, that it doesn't necessarily avoid it, but it helps you uh, identify it. You'll, you'll hear that said a thousand times in, in any con conference, but I'm here to tell you sometimes it does help very much so. And some of the lighted stents that are out there, I know that people swear by, uh, you know, I, I would, if I'm honest, I don't use stents as much as I used to. Um, I, 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 that's early in my career, I used a fair amount of that. Now, you know, you identify it. I, you know, if you try, if you're a lateral person and you can't identify it laterally, go medially. If you're a medial person first and you can't identify it, go lateral. If you don't find it low, start up high and work your way down. There, the, the bottom line is, it's just something that you have to be cognizant of. And the other thing is, especially if you're a medial person that likes to come underneath the vessel and lift up, Oftentimes, if you can't find that ureter, you're too deep and you got to look up. You got to look up underneath and bring that because you probably lifted the retroperitoneum up and it's just going with you. So that's probably uh, probably tip number one. But more than anything is to make sure once you do identify it, that you look and look again and really make sure that, uh, you know, that you're, you're keeping it in plain sight all the way through. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely, uh, especially the point about, you know, thinking you found it and then injuring it more distally. Once you've found it, you need to trace it all the way down uh, to be sure. And if you're looking at the psoas or the iliacs, you've gotten too deep and you need to back up and find the right plane because you're, you're, you're not gonna find it there. You, you need to find it. I, I actually have a very low threshold for any elective diverticulitis case uh, to uh, have stents placed. And I'm lucky because it's a very easy process where I am. But I understand that the, the resources aren't necessarily available or make it easy to put stents in, in a lot of those cases. Um, but the times that you injure it are when you didn't think you were going to injure it, when you thought you were in the clear. So, you know, just make it an absolute point to identify the ureter in every one of those cases and then trace it all the way down till you're past where you're dividing. Which make a point too, in some of the, the gnarliest of di diverticulitis cases, that's the ureter can go anywhere and everywhere. It can be pulled up. Uh, all the way up against the pelvic wall. And so it's uh, never be surprised uh, about where it could end up. So let's when talk in about, doubt, get a stent. 
Let's talk about laparoscopic versus open, you know, for that matter, laparoscopic slash robotic versus open approaches. Uh, start with a an emergent case. So maybe that second case where, or the, excuse me, our third case where the patient had uh, a bit of a, a perf, they were tachycardic, they're a little peritonitic. Uh, Josh or Scott, are any of you guys going in uh, laparoscopically or robotically up front? I, I tend to approach these emergent cases uh, in a sort of a, mid, a, a midway approach. I use like a hand port. And so I'm making my extraction site that I know that I'm going to have to use to get the piece out or to create my colostomy or to do my resection. And if it looks like I need mobilization, I'll try to do that laparoscopically. If it looks like it's really gone to hell in there and we just need to get the case done and the patient's sick, I will, I have a low threshold to make that incision as big as I need to, to get it done. But again, for a Hartman's procedure, you're not going to need to mobilize a splenic flexure the, ma the vast majority of the time. So you're going to pretty much be able to do everything below the below the belly button anyway. Yeah, no, I would just say that, you know, no matter if you do it lap, open, robot, however, the surgical principles need to remain the same. And you have to have the experience and the expertise to feel comfortable with what you're doing. And certainly if you don't feel like you can do an adequate job or you're kind of heavy handed with a very friable colon with a laparoscopic Babcock or other instruments where you're going to tear that colon, do something, then just open up. And if you feel like you're a wizard with uh, laparoscopy or even robotically, you know, most people in a really sick patient, they're not docking a robot, but I never say never. And I, you know, the principles need to remain the same. And I think that's what all of us would agree upon. And just keep in yeah. mind that it's not just the size of the incision, it's the length of the operation. It's all of those factors that really feed into your decision about how to approach it. Yeah, the only thing, the only other thing I would say is that, you know, in the old days, think about it. So the patient population that many of us deal with is morbidly obese, their belly wall as thick as can be. And, you know, when you're trying to see up for mobilization and trying to get up at what you know is going to be a difficult stoma where you may have to do a splenic flexure mobilization in order to, you know, get down low on those vessels and everything, that's a hard case open, especially for many of you who it's maybe you and the scrub tech at night. You don't have a group of people around you. You work in the community and you don't have a bunch of residents and everything. And so, you know, laparoscopy may provide an advantage for you. And it may be something that, you know, you can take somebody that instead of getting a huge operation with a big wound to heal, you can get in there and, you know, do part of it or do something. But to go to Josh's point, if you're not comfortable, you 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 want to get that patient resuscitated and get them out of the operating room. And a prolonged operation just to say that you could do it is not what we are advocating. All right, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about EEA anastomosis. So a little bit of a, a unique challenge. Um, uh, these can be somewhat uh, difficult uh, based on patient anatomy, length of your stump, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of tips and tricks, uh, Scott, do you have for us there? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, just in general, so especially as it pertains to sigmoid diverticulitis, if you, if you can't get the stapler to reach up, then in general, you know, you probably got to first ask yourself, as my distal transaction point the way that it needs to be. If you talk about uh, one of my favorite questions to ask when I teach a lot of these courses is, so where do you bring the spike through? The corner, the middle, the staple line, anterior, posterior? You know, we are, uh, we are in the process of running a trial right now at the Cleveland Clinic to kind of take a look at all of our experience. So we do so many colectomies. Uh, to finally answer this question. And that what I can tell you is the fact that it probably doesn't, the principles 
are the principles. There's some no-nos that you don't want to do. You know, very small uh, intermediate between two staple lines that are right next to each other with a potential ischemic situation. For example, if you're going to do a baker or reverse baker anastomosis, that's something you want to be able to avoid. But, you know, ask yourself, you know, what is the reason why if it's, for example, that the, the stapler won't go up? Am I where I need to be? Is there a band holding me up? Is there kind of some of the things that you read about in any particular textbook? But first and foremost, ask yourself, you know, where is the anatomy that I think I am? And am I really there? Yeah, I think if the I think if you follow the principles of good surgery and creation of a good anastomosis, you're you're not going to have a lot of problems with the EEA, because if you're doing your anastomosis to the upper rectum, you should be able to get the stapler up there. And I always, <clears throat> I think, it's really important to make sure that you freshen up that edge and know that you're stapling to healthy bowel. Number one. Uh, number two, you use your sizers first to make sure that you can reach uh, all the way up to where your anastomosis is going to be. And if you've done that, and if you've dissected out to the upper rectum and you clear off the uh, mesentery posteriorly, you should almost always be able to get a stapler up there uh, fairly easily. And, and in that case, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think, matter if you're coming out a little posterior to the staple line. But what I think is not a good idea is if you're trying, if you have a a fibrotic stump that's been, you know, scarred over and you're just going to try to, you just feel the sizer through that and you don't clean it off and you just try to staple through a lot of scar. I think that you're asking for, uh, for a problem in that case. All right. That's, that's fantastic. I think that wraps it up for our very first clinical challenges in surgery episode. We hope that you all enjoyed it. There's a lot more to come until next time. Yeah, so I just dawned on me, Patrick, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but <laughs> all you BTK historians out there, if you listen to our very first episode, it was actually Kevin, Jason, and I talking about diverticulitis. So go back and listen to that full circle. We got some tips and tricks because this is the wrap up of our first clinical challenges. And so first and first, Amitsen, we're glad that you joined us here. And until next time, dominate the day. <laughs>